This episode was recorded on the unceded lands of the Kaurna people of the Adelaide Plains. The History Trust of South Australia acknowledges elders past and present and the elders of the lands this podcast reaches. Hello and welcome to the History Festival podcast. I'm your host, Greg Mackey. The History Festival is an annual statewide event that explores the rich and deep history of South Australia. Held over 30 days in May, the History Festival explores the state's places and spaces, stories, collections and ideas that make us who we are today. One of South Australia's largest open access community events, the History Festival program features hundreds of events ranging from talks to tours, walks to workshops and exhibitions to special events. Events happen everywhere, in towns, cities and suburbs, in museums and libraries, in boats, trains and buses and mysterious buildings, on the street, by the beach and out in nature. Hear tales of the unusual and unknown, from amazing experts to local guides. With hundreds of events to choose from, there's something for curious minds and for all ages. Our theme in 2021 for the History Festival is change. From political change to social change, changing places, changing minds, changing hearts. Change for the better, change for the worse, on a big and a small scale and everything in between. The world around us is constantly undergoing change. Change is also a major thread that runs through the histories we share. We have also encouraged event organisers to plan events around this idea in any way they choose. So sit back and relax as we delve into some of the great stories and yarns that will make up the History Festival for 2021. Between Two Worlds is a stunning exhibition at the St Peter's Town Hall celebrating the Ghana people and their country. We join Anthony White on location to find out more. The History Festival of South Australia is a celebration about South Australian history and it seems fitting to start it off by hearing the stories and the histories of the Ghana people. We're in the beautiful St Peter's Town Hall where the exhibition Between Two Worlds is taking place. I acknowledge I'm on the land of the Kaurna people, both past, present and future, and we're incredibly lucky to be joined by Auntie Lynette Crocker. Auntie, welcome. Uh, Natalia, that means thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I'd like to say, um, coming here today from, um, I think we're on Second Creek or uh, from St Peter's in a very uh, special place, once the ceremonial ground of the Ghana people, and uh, it's part of an exhibition here between two worlds. And uh, what we're trying to do is to um, uh, bring an awareness of history and of Ghana culture and heritage to. Um, the Adelaide audience or anybody who wants to listen anywhere in the world. Yeah. Auntie, can you tell us uh, your relation to country here, a little bit about it? Yeah. Well, um, I'm a Ghana senior woman um, and my, um, my links to Ghana country is, of course, around the native title consent determination, which uh, happened in 2018 where... Um, our native title goes over the 24 councils that go over Adelaide, so which uh, St Peter's, Norwood, Burnside and Adelaide are all within that mix. And what we're trying to do is uh, reach out to all of the uh, the councils to uh, 
to look at uh, culture and heritage within each of the, the councils, but mainly to bring uh, uh, the historical uh, knowledge um, to the community so that the community understands and can be part of uh, uh, the responsibility of looking after and caring for country. Now, Auntie, you have uh, brought a tremendous amount of objects in here, put a massive amount of effort in into this uh, exhibition. What are a few of the things that are here that are of interest that you brought in? Well, um, I suppose there's there's a couple of artefacts. Um, there's uh, uh, mainly some weaving for the baskets. Uh, there's uh, a possum skin cloak that I've had... Um, uh, being part of the assembling or the reassembling of a possum skin cloak, uh, a digging stick, um, and a um, uh, an artifact that um, is a, a stone artifact and a grinding stone, which was off country, but it was used for the grinding up of seeds uh, that was used to make damper and bread. At one stage, so these uh, little things all come together about what life really used to be like back then. And uh, but looking at it now, to see that it could still have some application for us to uh, work through some of uh, bush tucker foods and bush medicine foods. If there was one thing that we should come and have a look at at the Between Two Worlds exhibition, what would you suggest that is? Um, well, I, I, I don't know if there's one thing. I think there's multi-things we could look at, but there's two. I'd say the possum skin cloak and uh, the cloak that's made of, of the kangaroo skin and what the kangaroo means to our country. Can you take us through the importance of those cloaks, please? Possum skin is a protected possum skin and we were um, uh, assisted uh, from New Zealand because they, they have them over there and they sold the possum skin to the Healing Foundation of which we had a workshop to assemble and put together. So it was uh, reigniting of uh, learning our culture, I suppose a bit of women's business here. Yeah. And what about the kangaroo pelts? What, what, what do they mean to, to, to you? Well, I'd say the kangaroo is usually um, uh, part of our men's uh, dreaming, but Tanda, and uh, further on in Adelaide, we're on Tanda and Yunga, and Tanda is part of the red kangaroo dreaming of Adelaide. I also notice as part of the exhibition there's a lot of beautiful weaving. It looks like it has some kind of deeper meaning. Can you take us through the weaving? Well, the weaving, uh, like as we said in the bat, is about not only about weaving the cultures together and bringing it into the contemporary now, um, it's about um, a teaching and handing on a... a um, uh, an activity, I suppose, that uh, Aboriginal women, but not only women, used to weave. Um, men used to weave as well. Um, and then they also used to do a knotting 
making nets, fishing nets, and which they threw up into the trees to catch birds and animals. And um, I believe uh, the Ghana did also uh, weave um, seaweed and made a cloak out of seaweed. And um, also um, the rushes, I myself uh, like to use the the I, I I just know it as the knobby club club rush. It's got a little knob on it. Uh, I don't know what the botanical name is for it, but it grows around wetlands, and um, you take the knob off, and you don't need a needle. But if you're weaving other fibres like uh, raffia, which I teach people how to weave by using raffia. There's baskets, there's bracelets, there's mats. Uh, there was lots of things, and it, and it's like, you know, when the, they used to make the wadley, how it was made out of the gum leaves and everything else, and it, then it just goes back into the environment as being organic and not considered rubbish, but part of the, the landscape and stuff like that. They are fantastic stories. Mm-hmm. Auntie Lynette Crocker, thank you for your help, your detail in this fantastic exhibition. Natalia. Well, that was a wonderful story. For more details, simply go to historyfestival.sa.gov.au. This story, proudly brought to you by the History Festival regional partner, SA Power Networks, empowering South Australia since 1946. The Schmidt-Rodethof is the oldest surviving Prussian farm complex in the Harndorf Township. The property is a time tunnel, taking you from the 21st century right the way back nearly 200 years. This humble conservation site will open your eyes and imagination to the life of an early European settler. You'll explore the buildings and learn about the lives of the people who built, lived and farmed here from 1841. You can experience the drama of baking day, taste traditional kuchen and bread baked in the 19th century Corbeld oven fired especially for this event. It's Anthony White's on site for the History Festival and today we find ourselves in the oldest surviving Prussian farm complex in the beautiful township of Harndorf. We're joined by Annie Fox and Little Davidge who are about to take us through this wonderful property. Ladies, welcome along. Thank you. Thank you. Now Annie, I believe this is your property. Can you tell us how you found this property and how you come to own it? Well, I came to Handorf on the way to work in Murray Bridge as a teacher and I couldn't believe my eyes because I had lived in a place like this in Germany when my parents and I were refugees from Estonia. My father had swum the Elbe River with me under his armpit as an 18-month-old kid and the Russian army was on the opposite side of the river shooting at everybody that was swimming to get away from the Russians. And how long have you had this property? Tell us that story. Uh, 1990, wasn't it? Something like that. Only because, as a family, I pretty much bludgeoned the kids and Brian, my husband at the, of the time, to come and help work on it. So there we were, banging around, trying to make sure this didn't be demolished because that's what was going to happen here to demolition no no I knew what it was no lived in a place like this in Germany as a kid no can't do that this is original it's a beautiful place has it been hard to maintain because it looks like there's been a lot of work that's gone into it well it's really been a bit of a pain in the ass you know (laughs) 
I can I say that? You just did. I'm just. <laughs> and what's really a credit to Annie and the family that they bought this place in 1991 or 1990. There was no running water in the front house. This was all collapsing. The wobble oven, something had fallen on it and it was in a bit of a state. There was nothing thrown out, so to get to things was really difficult. But Annie has restored it. Well, could we have a walk around the property? I know there's lots of buildings and there's ovens, so could you take us through? Um, What's this building up the back, which I guess for the listener is about the size of a double garage? That's right. That's called a burrowing house. And everybody lived in it. The cows on this side, and you can come in here and have a look at what it was like to sleep over the top of the cows for heat in winter time. And that's what the people on the site did. So it's got rusty corrugated iron as the roof. It's got really old timber as the walls, which have gaps in yeah, it. That's these... the old door we're going in. Yeah, that's right. And this is where the cows live. Oh, Folly, watch out for those oh, cobwebs God, watch there. Out. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, so they live here. So we're now inside this old barn, um, and it's quite small. It'd be about not five foot, and you've got well, to crouch right. to get in. We're all very tall because we're Baltic. <laughs> okay. So this is where the cows ate their dinner, breakfast. So this is at the bottom of the barn, and all the cows are on the dirt. Yeah, on, on here. And, and we've got a mezzanine above us. And what was happening in the mezzanine? The people that lived in this burrowing house, they slept over the top of the cows in winter because the cows' heat kept them warm. So you'd have to climb up from the living room area, which we'll go to shortly. You go up the ladder. So this is how you heated yourself. Now, should we walk through to the living room, which I might just set the picture, is approximately six inches from where the cows live. <laughs> yeah, that's right. What a glorious yeah, they, place. They lived here. They lived here. Uh, and the reason they had the cows next to the living room was that the, if cows could see the family at nights and and in the afternoon etc they'd give better milk more milk that was the the myth they could see through the gaps and the family ate their dinner over there and it's really quite an interesting place we go through the living room we're just walking away through the uh, the gum slabs so this living room is about seven foot by seven foot something like that and what would have people been doing in here Annie? eating this is dinner, dinner time, and uh, you know if it's raining, they would be making clothes or whatever is is required. Now I notice you've done a great job in keeping it very, very original. It must be very rare to see. Can you take us through some of the things that are in the living room now, which would have been here in the 1800s? Well, it was. You know, I haven't pulled anything out. I notice in this living area, which is beautifully kept with the 200-year-old oh. table, I don't see any toiletry areas. Uh, may I ask where they are? Come with us. (laughs) Okay, we're stepping out of the living room. We're going to the toiletry area next to the pigsty because the toilet would be sinking. It's a bucket. And and they would put the bucket out the back into sort of fertilising the trees, you know, the apricots, whatever. But there's a bit of a stench because the pigs were there. So could you explain what the toilet is so uh, the, the listener has a good idea of go, what Lindell. it's made of? You, you like well, it's only a one-holer. <laughs> 
and it's a bench with a hole in the bench, which is uh, timber slats underneath, and there's a bucket underneath within the hole. And on the side, there's the box with the fennel. It probably was ash in there originally. And there is actually, you won't believe it, Anthony, but there is some toilet paper hanging on the hook. And if you look in, you'll see that it's the newspaper. Now, I haven't seen this. Was it right? Oh, so, so is that genuinely what people would have yes. cleaned themselves with? Yes. So that is newspaper from the, looks like the 20s or 30s. Yeah, that's right. There's a whole pile in the pigsty. Right. I'll go back to reminding you that this place had no running water in 1991. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's, that's rough, isn't it? That's right. Wow, that's fascinating. So yeah. How do you find when families come through and children who are used to living in beautiful homes, they see this toilet? What is their reaction like? Oh, yeah. absolutely horrified, especially when we tell them that they poss- possibly may have been asked to take the bucket out for disposal. <laughs> but, but there are a lot of wise grey heads that say, nothing special about this. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Can you take me through what we're about to go and do? We're about to light a very special oven. Can you tell me the background of that oven? This has been here for a, for a long time, the corbelled oven, a 19th century oven. And the last family that lived here in the 1900s, Mrs... Schmidt. 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 She was making the cooking for the mm-hmm. ho- the hotel so once a week or twice a week she would fire up the oven so that was in the 1920s wasn't yeah, it that's Annie? right so yeah. it was used quite a lot for that period for commercial use but for family use it would have been the bread for the week and on Saturdays they, yeah usually Saturdays yeah. I find it interesting that it's Saturday that the oven was lit because I believe that that's the day that people bathed as well so they were nice and clean for church on Sunday <laughs> that's right. absolutely so they'd have lots of yeah. hot water <laughs> you've so very generously offered to fire up the Corbett oven today. Oh, can yes. we go over and do that now yeah so we've just walked into the area of the corbelled oven and we've got some twigs and we're about to start it now we also have a very unique looking contraption here which uh has looks like it's a wind up wind thing for lack of a better term with a big pipe going into the fire what is this well it's it's bellows the bellows but not the the bellows that you move backwards and forwards which i think most people are familiar with this is from a blacksmith's Forge. And of course, everybody had their own little mm. forge. Just it, open this really rusty old door, door. <laughs> a metal door into the cold oven. Yes, with the chimney on the, the. There's an escape hatch here, so the chimney's on the outside. In the old days, how did they used to check that it was hot enough? Put Annie? your hand in and count to twenty. Was that what they did? That's fascinating. There, if yeah. you can't keep your hand in, wasn't hot enough. Was yeah, otherwise mm. you'd get it wrong. Mm. <laughs> Lindell is just reaching in with her match to start the pilot fire in the corbelled oven. And I must say the oven is very big. It'd have to be eight foot long, about four foot high, and about five foot wide. So and massive area. Trying to get a, a, a flame here. Ah, here we go. Oh, look at that. Beautiful. The thing is that we do this the night before we uh, have people coming here to do bread. So we do 
lorries. We have ba yeah. a baker comes, and it's a it's a lovely day. There's a real excitement about yeah. There's sort of that calming kneading that kneading. goes on. And now that you've got the fire started, can you take us through what you do with your special apparatus here? Well, to make sure to get the wood to do, we put turn the, the handle. You can hear it. You'll feel some air come out oh, yes. there. So this is a big bellow on a stand, about yes. four foot high, and you're winding it with a handle, yep. blowing air into the oven. Yeah, that's right. Mm. To make sure. It Doesn't lights. it make a difference? Yeah. Mm. So it just spreads it along. So can you take us through, we're obviously heating up the cobbled oven, the cooking, the bread, can you take cooking. us through what that is and how it's made? It's a yeast loaf, so they, it's a leavened loaf, so yeast would be prepared, um, put into the, the flour, lots of women here would do a hand grind, but there was a bullock mill in the town so people could get their flour, that would have been the second year after the first wheat crop had been put in. But they were using rice sometimes for flour. That was cheaper. Yeah, <laughs> a pretty ordinary. <laughs> and the mixing process, how do you go about making it before you put it in the oven? Well, it would have been, they would have mixed with their big spoons in their bowls, mixed the flour around, and then in would go the, the yeast, which would have been heated with some water perhaps from the copper, and uh, then it would be left to prove. So they probably, uh, they would have proved it, that you do it for twice, twice the height and then you knead it down again and it would go into the ovens. And how long does it take to, to uh, bake in the oven? Not terribly long. The, once the fire has all heated up the area, they'd check the temperature, then the fire would be pushed to the back and it, it's the heat of the floor. So it takes about 20 minutes. So it's quite quick. Yeah. And the taste? Oh, beautiful. Could you give it a similar taste to something maybe modern well, today? Well, similar to. You know, lovely sourdoughs that you get. As part of the uh, the tour for the History Festival, what can what can we expect to experience? Well, you'll be able to see the property and some storytelling. There'll be some music, but you'll be able to see the baker doing the bread, and there's an opportunity for people to have a go themselves and it'll be sliced and you can have a taste. We, we sort of ask for a donation and there are some people that we make uh, little loaves and some people can buy a little loaf. So if we want to be part of the tour and come along, can you tell us how we can do that? Turn up at, in Harndorf at 20 Main Street on the 2nd of May and the oven, the first lot of bread will be out of the oven by 11. Imagine the past, the Schmidt Rodothoff and Bake Oven event, Sunday, May 2nd from 11am to 3pm. For more details, simply go to historyfestival.sa.gov.au.